Amen. Thanks, Matt. All right, so as Dan said, this is the eighth of our study in Thessalonians series, uh, 1 Thessalonians. Um, it's hard to believe we started this back in March, and here we are in May already. Um, <clears throat> so last Sunday, uh, Matt taught from chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Um, and in my Bible, the heading of that passage was simply the coming of the Lord. Um, while the end of chapter 4 details to the reader what will happen when the Lord returns, specifically related to those in Christ who've already passed and those in Christ who are still living, um, Matt gave a great title for that study. If you weren't here, uh, Grieve with Hope. And if you are not able to hear it last Sunday, I, I would say that Matt did what verse 18 of that passage says. And so I'd encourage you to listen to it online if you haven't. Uh, grieve with hope. So the text this week, again, as Dan mentioned, uh, the first 11 verses of chapter 5. And the heading of this text in my Bible is, again, a very simple heading, the day of the Lord. So last week, the coming of the Lord. This week, the day of the Lord. And it continues with the theme of Christ's second coming. And Paul tells us what to expect on that day and how we should prepare for it. So I'm going to read the text. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape but you are not in darkness brothers for that day to surprise you like a thief for you are all children of light children of the day we are not of the night or of the darkness so then let us not sleep as others do but let us keep awake and be sober for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So the theme I chose for this is stay in the light. And Paul starts the chapter by saying there's no need of instruction regarding the coming of the Lord. That was discussed last week at the end of chapter 4. And at first, this statement appears to indicate that this was something Paul already discussed with the Thessalonians, perhaps as a topic of, of focus to them. Recall earlier in chapter 4 when he calls them out for being idle, and we're told the reason for their idleness was the expectation that they had that Christ was coming back very soon. And so they didn't need to see, they didn't see the need to really do anything to take care of themselves. And we see this in chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. Paul instructs them to work with their hands, walk properly with outsiders, and be dependent on no one. So we're tempted to look at the Thessalonians as being foolish in thinking that way. And we think to ourselves, why in the world would they think that? But this has been a common occurrence throughout history. 
<coughs> wanting to predict a date for the second coming of Christ. I read about a few of them in preparation for this, and it's, it's really a, quite a sad read to hear about all the movements and how they began. And, and despite the very clear teaching of Christ himself and Paul and others, that we don't need to know the day, we will not know the day that of Christ's return, large groups of people, initially very well-meaning in their efforts, became fixated on this, obsessed with predicting the date. And of course, the date would come, it would, it would go, no result, and it'd pick another date, it would come and go, no result, and this would happen over and over again. And each time, significant resources were spent by these people and their teachers trying to figure out what went wrong, what did they miss. And some of them even bore denominations that still exist today. I have to wonder what they make of this text. So we're again reminded that there's really nothing new as far as sin and, and misguided wickedness goes. It was, it was sad to read about these endless efforts of these people. Um, and again, the time and energy spent on figuring out something, again, that Christ himself said, don't worry about this. I'm not coming back when you think I'm coming back. You're never going to know the time. <laughs> but you can see why this would be the first point that Paul makes with the Thessalonians in this text. And this point amplifies the foolishness of these historical examples even more. That is the reason there is no need for instruction, and Paul says it very plainly. You yourselves are fully aware, fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The use of the words fully aware, again, indicates they've previously been taught this. The exact phrase is also used in 2 Peter 3.10, and we'll get into that more later in this lesson. So like a thief in the night is a great phrase and a great description here for what Paul is saying. I think we'd all agree that the more successful a thief wants to be, the more he'll use the element of surprise to take advantage of his victim. A thief isn't giving his victim a four-hour window on a specific day like the cable guy or the, the Maytag repairman. It's a surprise. They're not walking up to the front door and ringing the doorbell, hoping someone will answer. No, they're, they're going in the back door or a window when nobody's home, something completely unexpected. And they'll wait until night when it's dark, when no one can see them coming or expecting them to come. So next, Paul writes, while they are saying, indicating that he's not referring to the people who would be reading his letter, the Thessalonians. He uses they, everyone else, not you, fellow followers of Christ, who I have taught, they, those unbelievers who are persecuting you. What are, what are they saying? Well, they are saying there is peace and security. Peace and security. What a myth of the human condition. Folks, you don't have to think very long or hard to realize that peace and security outside of the gospel do not exist. They do not exist in any facet of our lives. They never did. We could go quickly down a deep, deep rabbit hole with this one, and I'm not going to do that this morning. But here are just a few thought starters. Let's start with the context of our text. Do you remember what was happening in Acts 17? 
Some of the Christians were accused of turning the world upside down. They were told to stop preaching the gospel and talking about their king, Jesus, because that would disrupt the peace and freedom in Thessalonica. And the Christians pushed back, saying, no, no, the peace of Rome the, the, is a false peace. The only true peace and security is found in the gospel of Christ. So they got it. They knew this. Looking at a world history context, look at any history book, specifically one that catalogs any sort of history of warfare, and you'll see very few gaps in the chronology where there wasn't a conflict or an all-out war somewhere in the world. It's quite stunning. And just since 1978, the year yours truly was born, there have been major conflicts just where your, our country, the United States, was involved. Every single year, except for a couple of years in the mid-80s, and I'm only including actual military conflicts where our country was directly involved. I'm not including riots or domestic conflicts. And I know there was military conflict in other regions of the world going on at the same time that the U.S. was not involved. I, I just mentioned that previously. And more recently, the, the major riots over the last few years that we've seen, with people destroying large portions of major cities in the United States, the, the peaceful protests, they say, as some, some say. And people do not feel secure when people are rioting outside their window, right? And, and scared that they're coming to their town next. And of course, Russia invading Ukraine just a few months ago. And it goes on and on. We could spend the whole time talking about that. And I just have to mention something relevant to our culture here, specifically the United States. Of all the countries in the world, up until now, and who knows how long that will last, in broad brushstroke description here, we in the U.S., probably have the biggest false sense of security. For the most part, we have been and we're considered a, a very stable nation as far as nations in the world go. We have a strong military. We have vast resources. We're a republic. We enjoy freedoms that few people in other countries have. And for the most part, there has been peace in our country for a long time that we should be thankful for. So we can relate to what Paul is getting at here. But we also realize that it's just not the actual state of the world that we live in. Again, outside the gospel. There is no peace and security. So while they, the unbelievers, are saying there is peace and security, what does the text say? The rest of verse 3. Well, it says, Then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Again, talking about they, not the Thessalonians. And this description, again, is vivid in its clarity. <coughs> Sudden destruction. There's not a lot of interpretation there. And this is described in 2 Peter 3.10 as well, the second half of the verse that I referenced earlier. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Folks, I don't know what that really means. I can't picture what that looks like. But I'm very certain it will be unlike anyone, even the most creative people in the entertainment industry could dream up. So for these, these lessons we do, Jeff provides some commentary books for us to use. 
Uh, there's four of them that we have for this, this uh, study. And I've found them useful to some extent over the, the last few times I've done it. Um, but there's one commentary that really stood out uh, in this particular passage, and that's G.K. Bill's commentary on First and Second Thessalonians. Thessalonians. <clears throat> um, he's from the Dallas Theological Seminary, and I just found some of the passages that he had in his book to be extremely useful and descriptive. And so I'm, I'm quoting several of them in this lesson, and the first one is here. This gives us an idea of how this sudden destruction will come about. Pay attention to this. What has been traditionally understood as the second coming of Christ is best conceived as a revelation of this formerly hidden heavenly presence. The old world reality will be ripped away and the dimension of the new eternal reality will appear along with Christ's presence. When Christ appears, he will not descend from the sky over Boston or London or New York City or Hong Kong or any other localized area. When he appears, the present dimension will be ripped away and Christ will be manifest to all eyes throughout the earth. Matthew 24, 27. Just as one can lay flat a map of the whole world and see it all at once, so Christ will appear and be able to behold humanity at one glance, and they him. How this is possible in literal geographical terms is certainly unclear, but the answer lies in recalling that a new dimension will break into the old physical dimension, and the possibilities of new kinds of perception and of existence behind present understanding will then be realized." End quote. So it's safe to say that the things seen on that day will be things not literally of this present world. A new dimension breaking into our current physical dimension? One could see how that could cause sudden destruction and how there will be no escape. And how will it happen? As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, Paul writes. I'm going to make an obvious statement here. But it's worth noting. When labor pains occur to someone who's pregnant, there is a certain degree of surprise. But a pregnant woman knows when she's pregnant. She knows that labor is coming. She just doesn't know precisely when. So if we bring these two illustrations together, we can make the following observation. Christ's coming will be one, sudden and unexpected, like a thief in the night, and two, sudden and unavoidable, like labor at the end of pregnancy. There will be no warning, and in the second, no escape. But an important point about both of these illustrations is that we can prepare. And that brings us to Paul's next point about how we can. Verse 4, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day, we are not of the night or of the darkness. You probably noticed that Paul repeats several words and themes throughout the text. We saw night used in verse 2, and we see night and darkness used again here. So let's park there a little bit and talk about the point that Paul is trying to make with this metaphor. First, night and dark. Very clear meaning here. Complete blackness. Has anyone ever visited a cave? 
most of us have been in a cave one time or another. Our boys enjoy going to caves. We've been in a few of them. They like hiking through the dirt and the mud and the cold and the wet. And um, it's okay. I don't uh, like it that much, but it's fine. Um, but one of the coolest parts of the cave tour is when you get to the bottom of the cave, and the tour guide usually says, "Okay, hold on to your cameras and your small children. We're going to turn the lights off." And so they, they start turning the lights off, they turn one off over there, and then they turn one off the other side, and then they turn the one that's usually closest to you off. And it's dark. Completely dark. And it takes a while for your eyes and your body to process just how dark it is. They say, put your hand in front of your, your, your face. You can't see it. We don't know how to process that. Our bodies aren't used to being in complete darkness. And you expect your eyes eventually to, to adjust, but they don't. And as the seconds go by, you start to feel uncomfortable, maybe even a little queasy because you can't relate to where you are. And that's the darkness that Paul's referring to here. He's talking about the darkest night, utter blackness. I want to make that point clear. Second, light day. What is light? Well, light is the opposite of darkness. Light allows us to see things. And this metaphor is so, so strong on various levels. Think about the contrast of light and dark. When you're in that cave in the dark, you're, you're helpless. You're blind to what is around you. And that is dangerous. Imagine trying to find yourself out of a dark cave in the dark. And that's one of the points Paul's making here. He's saying, listen up, Thessalonians, you're not in the dark. You're in the light. You can see clearly. You can get out of the cave, no problem. The thief can't surprise you. You know he's coming. Think about the value of light in Paul's time, in the ancient times, when there wasn't a light switch in every room that you could just flick and the light comes on. If the sun wasn't shining in those days, it was dark. Even the artificial light that was available, a candle, a fire, which was usually provided for warmth or cooking, it was crude. It wasn't very good. The darkness is only possible in the absence of light. And we, in countless ways, need light. In the Old Testament, the contrast of darkness and light often reflects the light of the first creation, breaking into the darkness of the world. There are other examples of the light and dark contrast in the New Testament as well. It's used to illustrate the coming of the new creation through Christ and his followers. John 1.7 says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In our text, Paul substitutes light and day for Christ to emphasize the fact that if the readers truly are identified with Christ, they will live in a godly manner, enabling them for their Lord's coming. Christ, in his resurrection, is the beginning of this new creation. Here's a key point that we're making here. People become identified with Christ as the new creation when they believe in him, which enables them to evaluate reality by God's standards and not from the perspective of the ungodly world. We did some interior painting in our house last fall, uh, just before Thanksgiving. And because it was just before Thanksgiving, you know what it's like around here at that time of year. It's dark at 5 o'clock. I was doing some of the painting, we had somebody contracted, but the work I was doing, I was usually doing during the week after work, and it's dark outside. So I was using the overhead light, 
And I remember painting one particular wall in our, our foyer area, and I, I thought, oh, that looks pretty good. I'll put a coat, on, a coat of paint on here, and, and it'll be good to go. And I finished it, thought it was great. Came by the next morning where the sun's shining in on that wall. It didn't look nearly as good. In fact, it looked pretty bad. Every scratch, dent, was clearly visible. Um, you could see areas where I, I didn't get it exactly right. I didn't have enough paint there. The, the new coat of paint actually made it look worse. So what happened? The light of the sun changed my perspective of that wall. I could see the imperfections. In fact, I could see every imperfection. I tried covering up the imperfections with a thin coat of paint, and it actually made it look worse. It was going to take more to fix those imperfections. I'm going to repeat the previous statement, the key point that I made before my paint story. People become identified with Christ as the new creation when they believe in him, which enables them to evaluate reality by God's standards and not from the perspective of the ungodly world. That's what the light does. That's what accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior does. It completely changes your perspective. You can see the imperfections. And so we want to be there. We want to be in that light. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the same notion of evaluating, evaluating in the light of God's revelation probably reflected in the Thessalonians as well. They have become enlightened and are able to evaluate Paul's instructions as being true so that they are alert to live in order to please God, which we see in chapter 4, because they have become a part of the new creation in Christ. So while darkness includes spiritual ignorance and sinful deeds that result from that ignorance, all of which will pass away as a new world and a world of light will emerge. I believe this is the main point that Paul is making in this text, hence my theme, Stay in the Light. We don't want to be in the dark. We always want to be, we need to be, in the light. And Paul tells us why and how in the following verses. Verse 6. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. Again, the word others here has the same meaning as they that we saw previously. It's referring to the unbelievers, not the Thessalonians, those who are spiritually asleep. This is in contrast to deceased believers who are spiritually awake with the Lord that Matt spoke about last week, and we refer to them again here in this, this text in verse 10. Paul pairs the sleep metaphor with one state of sobriety as well. Being sleepy and being drunk are very similar. Being in either state will keep you from being alert. Again, my man, G.K. Beale, described this much better than I could ever do, and so this is the second passage that I'm going to quote here from his uh, commentary. If a thief comes into someone's house who is drunk, the thief can get away with quite a bit before the drunk person sobers up. 
Paul says one can be spiritually drunk. To be drunk spiritually is to imbibe too much of the world's way of looking at things and not enough of the way God views reality. To be intoxicated with the world's wine is to be numbed to feeling any fear in the present of a coming judgment. Then when Christ finally comes and shocks people out of their spiritual paralysis, they will be both cognitively and ethically surprised and mournful over their punishment. Folks, that is a terrifying state. I beg you, meditate on that question. Are you so intoxicated with the world's wine that you are numb to feeling any fear of the judgment that is coming? Because that judgment is coming. Don't be drunk on the trivial things of this world. And I'm not preaching that to all of you. I'm preaching that to myself. When I read this, I had to sit and think about that for a long time. I I get caught up in the nonsense of stuff, trivial stuff, of being a middle-aged man in Midwestern America, right? I I don't want to be in the dark. I don't want to be asleep. I don't want to be drunk on the world's wine. I want to be in the light. What does Paul tell us? Verse 8, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Here, He uses we and us, referring to he and the Thessalonians, the followers of Christ, not they or others as was used before. And he says, we belong to the day. We are in the light. We should be sober. I have to mention the Greek word here for sober also means self-controlled. Because if we are in Christ, we are already in the light of Christ and of the new creation And we are empowered to be careful about how we live. We should live expectant lives so that we are not surprised by Christ's return. As the text says, the day of the Lord should not surprise us like a thief. We know it's coming. So how would we prepare ourselves for a thief, a literal thief? Would we sit outside our front door like Dirty Harry with a 44 Magnum in our lap? You could do that. It's not reasonable to think that you could do that forever. You take other measures. You get a safe. You put your belongings in there. You lock your doors at night. You lock your doors during the day. Maybe you get a security system or a big dog. And so there is a reasonable way to ever be ever ready for Christ's coming as well. Revelation 19, verses 7 through 8 explains how the church will make itself ready for Christ's coming by wearing fine linen, bright and clean, which is interpreted to be the righteous acts of the saints. And Revelation 16.15 references keeping one's clothes on, meaning we are always ready for Christ's return, so we keep on doing those righteous things that please God. That's what keeping our clothes on means here. I would recommend the literal translation of that as well. (laughs) Paul uses similar imagery here of being awake and wearing certain clothes. Not to be like others who sleep at night. Rather, they are to be self-controlled. And putting on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of hope of salvation. Faith, love, and hope. 
This is not the first time we've heard this over the previous seven lessons of this series. We've heard this before in chapter 1, verse 3 of this letter. Faith, love, and hope. This is Paul's formula for genuine Christian existence. The only way to be ready for Christ's coming is to live a life of trust in God. In his promises, Paul stresses that these three things, because he is concerned about the Thessalonians' attitude toward death, as we saw last week, and to the Messiah's final coming, as we're studying now, today. G.K. Bill points out that Paul is making a statement about our identity and our responsibility. The other commentaries I mentioned actually referenced this commentary in this area as well. So this is my third and final quote from from G.K. Bill. If the armor indeed is figurative for the Christian virtues, then the question needs explicitly to be asked why Paul exhorts the readers to be self-controlled. The answer is that Paul is encouraging them to become what they already are in Christ and to grow even more in him. We saw this previously as well, right? Paul exhorts them to do even more. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 1, we are called to live out of the reality of what Christ has done as we wait for the day of his return. Our hope is not based on the idea of figuring out the day of his return. This is another key point. Our hope is based on the knowledge that he will return and that we are a part of the children of the light who are prepared for that return. So stay in the light. I'm going to repeat that. Our hope is based on the knowledge that he will return and that we are part of the children of the light who are prepared for that return. And in the subsequent verses of this this text, Paul gives us a deeper basis for this preparation. Verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So let's walk our way through this section. For God has not destined us for wrath. Why? Is it because there is no wrath coming on the world and so we don't need to worry about it? No one's destined for wrath because God is not that kind of God? Is that what it is? Or is it because wrath is coming, but this is not our destiny? You will escape. You will be spared. Look at chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. He says of the Thessalonians, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So wrath is coming. God's wrath, God's anger is coming. Jesus himself said so. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Paul writes in Romans 2.5, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And again in Romans 5, 9, 
Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And there are more examples. That was just a sampling. But it shows us that the word of God is brutally honest and realistic about the future of this world. His wrath is coming. And most of the people in our neighborhood and workplace, perhaps even some of you hearing this now, give this very little thought. But Romans 1.32 says this, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And we're seeing that live out right now in the news. They're doing such things that deserve to die. And they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is pure wickedness. So you may think that believing in the coming judgment and wrath of God is unintelligible to some people. But as we're told here, that is not the case. The truth is, it is written on their hearts by God himself. They do know. And they need to hear, even if they don't admit it at first, they need to hear that there is a way of escape. And Paul gets to that in verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The encouragement here comes from the absolute certainty of those words. They don't say you might obtain salvation or you might escape wrath. Rather, you are destined. You are appointed for salvation. The decision in heaven has been made. The appointment is set. It is firm. How do we know the certainty of these words? Can we stay in the light under our own brute determination, our own discipline, our own good works? Of course not. This is one of Paul's first statements in chapter 1 of this letter. Verses 4 and 5, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Friends, these words have meaning. Paul says to the Thessalonians, You will not face wrath. You will obtain salvation because God chose you for his own. Their lives are characterized by faith, love, and hope in Christ Jesus. It's nothing they are doing on their own. Romans 8.30 says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Again, how can this sovereign, holy God, who we worship together, make such firm, unshakable statements? You are not destined for wrath. You are destined for salvation. How can he say that? Again, the end of verse 9 and 10, it's right there in front of us. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The death and resurrection of Jesus enables us to live in the light. It enables us to stay in the light. Christ died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Whether we are alive like we all are right now, Paul uses the word awake, or whether we die, Paul uses the word asleep, and we will all be asleep one day. Christ died for us means he bore our sins in his body on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24, 
so that I might bear his divine and perfect righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Died for me means died in place of me, punished instead of me, bearing wrath, God's wrath, so that I would not. Salvation means destined to live forever with Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. No wrath, only Jesus, only the light. Stay in that light. Folks, I hope you will remember these words. I hope you will use them in the way that God intends and commands in verse 11. I know there's a lot of repetition here. I know that most of you have probably already heard this before. But guess what? So did the Thessalonians. But Paul wrote a letter to them that we're still able to read today. We're reading right now. We've read the last seven weeks. We can read it over and over again. I encourage you to do that. Our final verse of this text. Verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. The Thessalonians were already doing this. And Paul was certain of it. He writes about it and praises them for it. And he still implores them to encourage one another more and more. He does this several times throughout the text. To lift each other up more and more. And why would they not do that? Like the Thessalonians, we deserve wrath. And yet, like the Thessalonians, if we are in Christ, we will be delivered from that wrath. Shouldn't this make us more inclined to want to help those who are not? I pray that it will. So by God's grace, may he use us to keep others in the light and out of the darkness, so that they might not be destined for wrath, but appointed salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.